Hey, 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 it's Gilda. <laughs> and Steph. <laughs> and you are listening to Saturday Night High, the podcast where we get stoned and talk about Saturday Night Live. How are you tonight? I'm doing very fine. My roommate has this beautiful bong that I just used, so I'm kind of going places right now. <laughs> Sounds fun. <laughs> uh, what Does the bong have a name? Oh my god, it probably does, but I don't know it because too many, too many names to remember in my life. Okay, so that's a cliffhanger for the next for the next time you hear us. Is what's what's the name of Steph's bong? Steph's roommate's <laughs> bong. Um, yeah. So welcome. We're both high. I am. I tonight I switched up my cartridge. I am smoking Girl Scout cookie by AeroPro. Fuck yeah. Uh, oh, it's so delicious. <laughs> so smooth. Um, should make for an interesting show, though, because this is the one that fucks me up the most. So anyway, we're going to take a small moment here to remind you that if you would not feel comfortable watching Saturday Night Live with the littles in your life, answering the questions and having the conversations that arise... Yeah, if you don't want to, if you don't want your kids to hear swears and talk about drugs and sex, you should uh, probably throw some earbuds in. Tonight we are talking about part three of Live from New York, uh, which is edited by Tom Shales and James Andrew Miller. Is that, oh, where's my book? Uh-oh. Oh. Acrobatics. I wish I could give you mine, but unfortunately, oh, okay. not physically possible. Yes, it was edited by James Andrew Miller and Tom Shales. Yeah, I wish that was possible. That would be so much easier if we could just pass yeah. it back and forth. And But also, I feel like I'm living in Star Wars sometimes. Okay. So, yeah, that book and this chapter talks about 1980 to 1985. So, part three starts off talking about Jean Dumanian. Would you like to give a little bio... So, yes, The Stars Come Out covers 1980 to 1985. This is section three, and it covers the uh, turbulent 10-month reign of Jean Domanian and the subsequent arrival of Dick Ebersol and how all that happy shit went down. And this section has a fair amount of drama, and section five has a fair amount of drama. Section five right. was it was a roller coaster ride from beginning to freaking end. Yeah, but this feels like one as well. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh so the section starts off with a quote um from Pam Norris, who was a writer on the show, and this is page one ninety-one. That she has her personal conspiracy theory, which is that whoever came in after Lauren and the original cast was going to be killed, not literally figuratively because you know you can't replace the Beatles somebody thought well we'll just let things get extremely bad and then we'll pull it back up a little bit afterward it'll be considered a triumph and this kind of makes sense I get it but it makes sense at the same time just bring someone in that knows how to run the show yeah it was just a bad look for everyone involved yeah when she took over I think it said that like the budget went from a million dollars to $350,000 yeah. per episode, which yep. like, they really just wanted them to fucking 
suck dick basically is what nbc was saying to them like <laughs> they, they, yeah they were expected to do the same show on a third of the budget and that is I, that's not possible that wouldn't be possible yeah. today never mind that yeah no it's just not feasible yeah so she was set up to fail and there was a writer uh barry blaustein says on the uh this is page 195 he's he was another writer for snl when I got there the first day and I was taking off my jacket, a writer from the office next door came in and said, I want you to sign a petition to get rid of Gene Jumanian. It was total turmoil already. Yeah, yeah that, like, like that's day one. I would not make it to day two. Like, no, no. That's like, oh, okay. Either she's not liked that much or there's something terribly wrong going on here. And neither's good. No, neither yeah. is good. Another thing that happened in these five years um, that's also noted on page 194 is Andrew Smith, yet again, another writer, there's lots of them in here, um, another writer for the show uh, says, if you want to get philosophical about the problems of the subsequent years, after the first five years, the actors were so cognizant of the success of the group, wow, this bodes well. That Chevy and John and Gilda had broken out into these huge stars, that they began to have one eye on the audience and on the fact that, that they began to have one eye on the audience and on the fact that Steven Spielberg might be watching and only one eye on being funny. I agree. And I know I say yeah, that. Yeah, I think he called it <laughs> I think he called it like a loss of innocence, right? Like the show like started out as something so innocent and fun, like doing it just for fun, and now it's you're doing it for like your career. That's exact. That's exactly Which is it. Valid. <laughs> Me sometimes um, I just get too high to talk. <laughs> um, Chris Albrecht was an agent for a bunch of comedians. I just want to comment on his uh, client list: Jim Carrey, Whoopi yes. Goldberg, Billy Crystal, Dana Carvey. Sandra Bernhard, Keenan Ivory Wayans, Joe Piscopo, and other people, like, and other people, like, that's, I, I want to know right. who the other people are, if those are the big names. Yeah, when I saw that, I was like, damn, okay. complaint that some people had about Jean Dumanian was that she didn't really know comedy. And David Sheffield says on page 197, Jean knew zilch about comedy. She didn't have a clue. It was almost a lesson in how not to run a comedy show. She had a knack for pitting people against each other that was just antithetical to comedy. Okay, pause. That's some, like, Mark Zuckerberg-level shit there. Like, I'm gonna pit everyone against right? each other. Like, what the fuck? That's not how you run anything. That's just bad management never mind it's like just to see who will go the farthest yeah, yeah it's awful oh okay so unpause i don't know why she thought that was a good way to work she actually started rivalries where none existed before amongst the writers and cast thinking somehow the strongest would prevail that was not a formula for comedy like no fucking shit no that sounds like a formula for a really bad reality tv show yeah, what sealed the deal, and I was really willing to give her the benefit of the doubt. And granted, I haven't really seen a ton of that time. Those clips, really, there's nothing besides Eddie Murphy about those years that's really remembered. Or about those 10 months. It's how Lauren wants it to be, too. It's how Lauren wants it to be. It's probably how it should be, with the exception of Eddie Murphy. So. Oh my I, god, Yes. Well, and another another thing that, with with the exception of Eddie Murphy, another thing that 
really struck me when I was reading this section was I had never heard of any of the people that she hired or were hired during that span of time. Like, not one. And yeah, I don't know uh, no, any... Eddie Murphy. That's just because of Eddie Murphy as a person, though, you know? That's why he's fucking skyrocketed. Yes, but also, like, there's, I mean, there's always a few per era. Like, you know, there's always a few names, not just like, oh, <laughs> yeah. who, who, who was your era of SNL known for? Eddie Murphy. Oh, that, I mean, that's great. Is that it? I mean, good on you, but... Um, yeah, and what really sealed the deal for me was uh, Harry Shearer, cast member, uh, saying he went to Gene and said, I know you're not a fan of Lauren's, and you know that I'm not a fan of Lauren's, so you're not going to have a loyalist sitting around saying Lauren wouldn't, wouldn't have done it this way. I told her, I'm willing to come work on your show. I think you really need to get some people around us, if you want me to come, who've got some experience, because you're not going to have the slack that Lauren had at the beginning. You're going to have to hit the ground running. I suggested Christopher Guest and a couple of others as people who should come in. And she said, I'm not really sure I want people who know what they're doing. And at that point, I knew I wasn't coming back. That was so fucking weird. <laughs> like, any job that you're hiring for, it, wait, you sit down, okay, who do I want? Someone that doesn't know what the fuck's going on. That's That person's at the top of the list. No, that's fucked up, bro. <laughs> Like, she just wants a bunch of people who will do whatever she fucking tells them to, because... But yeah, she wanted a bunch of yes-men. Right. Also, her calling Woody Allen was... I didn't, li- I didn't like that. Yeah, I was like, oh, of all fucking people? Right. Okay. <laughs> like, gross. Ew. Yeah, and so... Mm-mm. No. No, we are... Nasty we're... as fuck. Yeah, no, I didn't... I didn't like that. Jean Domanian, she was kind of damned if she did and damned if she didn't. Um, she's quoted on page 198 as saying, even the censors became very, very tough on me. I couldn't say something like rolling off a log. They thought there was an innuendo there. Then you think about what we got away with from 75 to 80. I mean, we were saying things like golden shower and they didn't do anything about it. But the censors became really so tough on us. It was incredible. A lot to unpack. Yeah, quite a bit. Do you want to start unpacking? That's just... Should we just leave it at that? for her. Yeah. yeah. That's really all you gotta know. Like, like. I, it's such a double standard, and... I, no, don't get me wrong. I mean, I don't think had... She, I mean, had she not been dealing with incredible sexism and bias against her from day one, I don't know that she still would have run a good comedy show, but I think... Right. She might have been given, you know, a bit more slight. Yeah, I don't know. I guess at this time they were having meetings at NBC trying to, you know, raise the ratings. And Barry Blastine says, one executive from the network called me and Dave into his office and said, I want to show you something. And he shows us this footage of a boa constrictor eating a mouse. And he says, this is exactly what we should be doing on the show. It was such a bizarre meeting. Bizarre is the like most basic descriptor that i have for that yeah like imagine waking up in the morning and being like this is what i'm going to choose to do today in a meeting I, <laughs> no i can't because i know that i would immediately be terminated if i tried that 
I, yeah, I, A, it, that's fucked up. B, we're not going to put it on live television. Do you want to introduce Eddie fucking Murphy? Let's see, where do I start? I mean, Eddie Murphy, he he talked about, the thing that I remember the most, honestly, is just the fact that he like would call and just fucking be like, I have a bunch of fucking siblings, please hire me. He wouldn't say fucking, he would actually be like probably really professional about it. I don't know. I was nothing at, at the other end of that phone call but yeah i just think that's adorable that he really went for it and did fucking amazing so eddie murphy had been calling the talent coordinator for saturday night live and apparently this is on starts on 200 and this goes over into 201 he says gene had cast an actor named robert townsend to be quote unquote the black guy on the show and then this guy eddie murphy started calling me it sounded like from a payphone and i told him i'm sorry we're not auditioning anymore he called again the next day and he would go into this whole thing about how he had 18 brothers and sisters and they were counting on him and he would call every day for about a week and i finally decided i could use him as an extra the point of that gene Domanian really didn't want to hire him This guy, Neil Levy, Neil Levy, he pushed for it and quote, the point of it is that she didn't want him and now she, and she's been claiming she discovered him for years. Now Ebersol, I heard, is claiming he discovered him and Ebersol wasn't even on the show when Eddie came. But Ebersol used to take credit for all the not ready for primetime players, so that doesn't surprise me. (laughs) Yeah, doesn't surprise me either, but still. I, I just, I love all of the bitchiness back and forth between right? the takes in this book. And I love it when it's like, you know, they heard the quote that was just above them. They're like, ah, uh, no. Oh my God, <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you what responding. really happened. And it's like, okay, I'm okay. glad we're getting both sides of the story so we can figure out where in the middle, you know, what actually probably happened. Yeah, um, like who was valid. NBC was trying to steal Eddie Murphy right out from under Gene Domanian and Saturday Night Live. I think his traje- his like career trajectory would have been so different had he done that though. Oh, absolutely. And I think he made the right move getting big on Saturday Night Live and then jumping ship because I think if he had started yeah. on a sitcom, people wouldn't have gotten to know. It's like he's it they don't been, know the actor as well. No, it would have been tame it would have been like uh, watered down Eddie Murphy. And yeah, yeah. he was 18 when he was hired and they finally said okay uh and then i found out from eddie that a network vice president was trying to tell him to leave the show and that he'd get a sitcom on nbc but eddie wouldn't do it and that's from gene Domanian. um yeah i think that i mean that's a real shitty move on nbc's part it just shows that they were trying to tag the show yeah. they knew she had something good and they were like aha oh, c- come here we'll give you something whoa so that is true holy shit so, yeah, the Gene Domanian era came to an end in February of 1981. And this is what I mentioned previously when I talked about people saying the fuck word and not getting fired. So do you remember, Steph, back in season one when Paul Schaefer said the fuck word on live national television? I don't remember because I was not there. <laughs> Okay, you little smartass. Okay. Do you remember in a previous episode where we talked about Paul Schaefer being the first person to swear on Saturday Night Live? Oh, yes. I was confused about the question. <laughs> I don't know why I was confused, but hey. Because you're high, honey. Because you're high. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. 
Jean's fate was sealed on a night in late February of 1981. Charlie Rocket was playing the victim of a shooting in a show-length spoof of the then-popular primetime soap opera Dallas and its famous Who Shot J.R. cliffhanger. Mere minutes before the 1 a.m. closing time, Rocket, in a wheelchair, ostensibly because of injuries, suffered in the assassination attempt, complained about having been shot, and said, for all those watching at home and in the studio to hear, I'd like to know who the fuck did it. And then Fred Silverman, the, a- the NBC president, says, Domanian got out of control. I think the thing that really did it was that there was a kid on the show by the name of Charlie Rocket, and one night he did the unpardonable. He said the fuck word on live television, and it went out to the whole network. And that was it. I said, who needs this aggravation? I think we made the decision even before then that we had to get rid of her. This woman was a train wreck, and the shows were just not watchable. Okay. few things here. So... She got fired because Charlie Rocket said fuck. No one lost their job when right. Paul Schaefer said fuck. Right. And she, then you have Fred Silverman, the president of NBC, saying that she got out of control and what did it was Charlie Rocket saying the fuck word, but that they'd already decided by then to get rid of her. And this was just the, this was just the excuse. And it's like, you said the quiet part loud, buddy. Yeah, we'll blame it on this one incident. That was kind of crazy. I mean, right, and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that he was right to do that, especially if you know no, you're not supposed to. Like, Paul Schaefer, it was an accident. This seems like it might have been planned. Like, I planned in what way, about. though? Like, planned, Literally, like, yeah. like, Charlie Rocket wanted to, like, get the headlines on Sunday that he said fuck on Saturday Night Live or something. I don't know. I, I, I mean, quote you from earlier, yeah. I wasn't there. So, Jane Domanian, she's out. Quote on page 204, in his desperation, Brandon Tartikoff turned to old pal and fellow Yaley Dick Ebersole, a man who had never produced a comedy show or professionally written a sketch in his life. So this, uh, this also sounds like it's going to get off to a great start. He did make some interesting choices. <laughs> he did. That's what I will say. But that sounds about right. Rich white guys from Yale giving each other jobs. Like that's... That's, that's, yeah, to that's be part. expected in this country. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, oh, like, I'm, I'm like, really? That's how you got your job? But I'm also not surprised in the least that it's like, oh, I knew yeah. you and drank with you when I was 18 to 22? Yeah, sure, you can run the most popular late night comedy show in the world. It's fine. Come on in. Literally. <laughs> I don't understand. Neighbors are gonna really start to wonder what the fuck is going on in here. She was really worked up about Saturday Night Live. I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> oh my god. I actually woke up because there were people on my roof this morning talking. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> no. Get off the roof. Also, what time was it? Yeah. It was like 5.30, I think. Okay, I don't no, know. Okay, I, mean, I, was gonna okay, get I was anyway. No, I was going to say, it's too early to be on the roof, but you really shouldn't be on the roof anyway. But no, go back to bed. Don't be on the roof. Right? The thing that they were talking about was, it was just some, like, white dude nonsense. So, it was, I, I was like, I mean, when I you said there were people on the roof, like, I was picturing white men, so, you know. Michael O'Donohue had an interesting thing where he came in and spray-painted danger on the wall and was like, this is what the show lacks. I don't know if that's what he sounded like. That's what I'm picturing. He, and I mean, he's right. Like, when the show is dangerous and pushing boundaries, 
that's when it's at its best. But also the story about him spray painting danger on the wall and the spray can stopping halfway through the word. So it just said, Dan, but he wanted, he, he had the vision that Michael O'Donoghue had the vision of taking the show down. He wanted to destroy the show. His motto was Viking death ship. Let's all go down in the Viking death ship. And Tim Kazarinsky said that. And he then follows it up with, I grew up in the slums, you know, starving. And I'm thinking, can we keep it afloat until I can buy a condo? And I, <laughs> I, 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 I related to that. That was really funny. Yeah. In this section of the book, you do see the term death ship quite a few times. Um, because yeah, I don't know what it was that he was trying to do exactly. And like, also at the same time, like the network itself wanted things to be a little bit more conservative, but I guess that has an impact on your comedy. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't see what good tanking the show would do. Like that just puts a bunch of people out of work and no one is happy. Something I found, something I thought was really funny and quite cute was Grant Tinker, former NBC chairman, saying, I never visited their offices on the 17th floor. Never went up there once. I didn't want to go up there and fight my way through all that marijuana smoke, which I've been led to believe was quite thick. It's like, yeah, that's great. Um, sounds fun. It's, uh, yeah, it sounds it like a like lot of fun. It's apartment at times. <laughs> Michael O'Donohue had this, his final quote uh, when he got fired. This is according to Robin Schlein. Uh, Schlein. When Michael O'Donohue got fired, he left this amazing note. I was fired by Dick Ebersol. I did not leave the show, and if he should claim otherwise, he is, to steal a phrase from Louisa May Alcott, a lying cunt. It's very Michael. He posted <laughs> it on the wall. Okay. That was funny as fuck. Like, that's some Taylor Swift, I didn't have it in myself to go with Grace level shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, Holy then, shit. They all made copies and took it off the wall, Xeroxed it, knowing that it would be ripped down, but apparently the copies of the note survived. I love that so much. I also just love the idea of being like, holy shit, we gotta Xerox this. <laughs> right? <laughs> he was fired, and then unfortunately he had a massive, massive aneurysm shortly after being fired from the show. The wake sounded like a shit show. There was food, there was drink, and then Bob Tischler says, you have to realize that a lot of people who were once friends or who once worked together and who had lots of issues between them were suddenly in a room together. When anybody dies, everybody gets pulled together whether they like it or not. At Michael's wake, there were a lot of egos flying and a lot of people needed to be the center of attention. Jane Curtin had a cool quote that the fact that we were all here, our lives forever intertwined, and you had these love-hate relationships with people. Things got said that were just so incredibly perfect and mean and funny and honest. Some people laughed, some people gasped. It was pretty cool. Like Jane Curtin's attitude about that kind of thing. About life. <laughs> she just seems to yeah, have a really good just, outlook. Yeah. <laughs> so Dickie Brissall was now in charge, and he was good with money and production and bad at comedy. And this information is located from, like, page 219 to 226-ish. But 
Dick Ebersol, uh, according to Dave Sheffield, ran defense between us and the network. He kept the wolves away while we did the show, and this is good executive strategy. So he kind of kept the show alive in a way that, um, you know, he was able to let the writers and comedians do what they wanted and do what they needed to do while keeping the network say, hey, you know what? It's successful. Let them do it. And that's a really good running defense. Yeah, it is. It's a good strategy. I'm high. Um, <laughs> but again, he's a producer, not a comedian. And on page 221, um, Tim Kazarinski says, somebody pointed out to me that at read-throughs that Ebersol didn't really know what was funny. He would look over to Davey Wilson, the director, for some sort of indication. And of course, Davey had done the show for so long that he was very tired. He only cared if it was easy to shoot. If it was difficult, he would just move his head from side to side and Ebersol would kill it. So he took a lot of lead from Davey. It's nice to know that uh, the set director was running the show. Yeah, right? Like... (laughs) I can't imagine, like, being a writer and knowing that the person who is watching this doesn't even give a shit. <laughs> like, not even that he doesn't give a shit, but he doesn't even know how to, like... No! There's no motivation to go bigger, to do, you know, big, fun, new ideas. It's just, all right, yeah. is this going to make like, my life hard? Yes? Okay, then I don't want to do it. That's not, not a great job strategy. Just, like, characters, like, just... just do characters and say simple kind of almost which okay so andrew smith points out his real name is duncan dicky ebersol he used to have a dutch boy haircut and he would come to the office dressed like he was going to a country club golf sweaters plaid madras pants that kind of stuff he certainly had no embarrassment about being a wasp it's like i can't imagine someone running saturday night live coming to work in plaid pants and golf sweaters that's like the most narky thing ever (laughs) yeah like how did he survive truly (laughs) the reagan administration is happening um and the thing with Ebersol was that he was always looking for the lowest common denominator. The moral majority was really big then, and he didn't want to do anything to piss anybody off or do anything controversial. I had just come out of Second City, and he tells me, I don't want to do political things. I don't want to do controversial things. Who do you do impersonations of? Can you do Mickey Rooney? I was like, fuck off. <laughs> Tim Kazarinski. Hey, again, the proper response. Mickey Rooney was a shit human being. Terrible person. Yeah, so they were they were told not to really touch anything political. They weren't allowed to do anything about the Iran hostage crisis. And then when the crisis was over, they did a whole show with every hostage sketch they could think of, which I thought was a baller move. I thought that was kind of fucking funny. Like, imagine sitting down and realizing that every single sketch is sort of hostage-related. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, fuck, they've been saving these ones. <laughs> I something I thought was really gross was um the bromance between Joe Piscopo and Frank Sinatra. It was like, yeah, whatever. That was just really toxic and gross and Yeah. So weird. Like So Joe Piscopo, he played Frank Sinatra on Saturday Night Live and Joe Piscopo was Italian and felt he was, you know, doing this great service to his idol Frank Sinatra. And 
uh, just got really weird about it and it started to irritate cast members and I can see why because there were some really racist shit undertones there. This is Bob Tischler and this is a long quote but this illustrates the grossness. There's a Stevie Wonder story. It was a sketch called Ebony and Ivory and it was supposed to be Frank Sinatra and Stevie Wonder. Joe and Eddie. Do you remember this? I, I vaguely remember reading about this and being like, mm. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, Frank was in the sketch, which Barry and David wrote. Frank was supposed to be waiting for Stevie Wonder to show up at the recording studio. And Joe said, Frank wouldn't wait for Stevie. Stevie would have to wait for Frank and refused to do it that way. It was sick. As Andrew Smith said, Joe needed to think he was Frank Sinatra. All that stuff. Fucking weird. Yeah, it, it's real fucking weird. And... We wanted to write a sketch called Frank Wouldn't Do That because we'd pitch a sketch or something and Joe would say, no, no, Frank wouldn't do that. I once wrote a sketch to the Gay Frank Sinatra Club and no, not that. Frank wouldn't do that. So he really got a little squirrely about this whole Frank thing. Joe saw his Frank thing not in comedy terms, but as a tribute. And again, that's, I get it, but like, I see Kate McKinnon's RBG as a tribute. It pokes fun, but... Right, like... It's, like, good-natured, and this was just, like, idolizing an old racist white Italian dude and also being a racist white Italian dude, so I don't really see, you know, it's not really... Right. Yeah. No. It's just, like, like, fuck it. Like, it's comedy. What are you, what are you doing? Yeah. So, I wrote down, yeah, Joe P can fuck right off with his racist bullshit. That was my note for that section. Yeah, he really can. On 229, um, there is a note that Eddie Murphy blossomed during the Ebersol regime. He was fresh, funny, and electrifying. He lit up the screen. Audiences who had wearied of the show's sameness and dropped away were lured back to see the spectacular new kid in town. Eddie Murphy, he was bringing the people back. Ratings, they went up. I just fucking love Eddie Murphy. Um, Yeah, and this is the first of many cyclical ups and downs of the show. So it had an up, it had a down, now it's on the rise again. Because of Eddie Murphy. Oh, here's the, here's the terrible Mickey Rooney part, okay? So Dana Carvey is in this section, or he's quoted in this section. I think this is his first quote here. And, okay, so do you know the TV show All in the Family? Vaguely. Like, I've seen DVDs of it. <laughs> okay, so... Yeah, it was a really problematic show in the 70s, and it was like the point was that, you know, even though the patriarch of the family was really racist and bigoted, he was, he was a good person. And it's like the most, it's bullshit. My father loves that show, I cannot stand it. And again, Rob Reiner, yeah, no, I know, I know, I know. Rob Reiner was on it. And he's hosting the next episode of Saturday Night Live that we're doing in the first season. So fuck yeah, I do. Pretty like excited him. about that. I like him. He was on the show and he played a good person on the show. He played a good, nice, innocent young man. He was fine. He was not the problem. Kind of sometimes, from what I remember. The last time I saw it, I was probably, well, too young to have been watching it. But again, that let's Dana Carvey. He was stuck in. He was in a New York. He was in New York, stuck in a sitcom with Mickey Rooney, Nathan Lane, Meg Ryan, and Scott Crothers called One of the Boys. 
To me, it sounds like it's like an updated premise of All in the Family. And Mickey Rooney was always talking. I was the number one star in the world. You hear me? The world. Bang. The world. Judy Garland never owned a car. They pumped her so full of drugs they killed her. How long has Robert Redford been in the business? 10 years? I've been in the business 61 years. He was 62 at the time. I thought Dick Ebersol pulling a Lorne was absolutely hilarious. By pulling a Lorne, do you mean just dipping? think so (laughs) if dipping means what i think it means by how you've how you've uh uh, context okay so there is a story behind this so eddie murphy had created a really or he had a character on saturday night live called buckwheat and buckwheat was insanely popular and eddie murphy got sick of people walking up to him and being like oh man do buckwheat he essentially walked up to lauren and was like I want to kill Buckwheat. And so they shot this really funny video of, you know, the assassination of Buckwheat. And they did part one, one week, where he gets shot. And the next week they said, well, you can't air this. It was too bloody, you know, it's too violent. They're going to think we're out of our minds with all of this violence. (laughs) And I had said, Diggy Brissall says, oh, come on, we're on the night before. We're finishing off a comedic premise and you're telling me I can't air it. And I had sworn I was never going to do something like this. But I told him, in 45 minutes, I'm going to hold a press conference announcing I'm not doing the show anymore. I'd never done that. That was always Lauren's trip, threatening to quit. He said, I'm leaving and I'm going to make abundantly clear the height of insanity that went behind this bullshit decision. And I said, see ya, with a smile on my face and I left. The censor called Grant Tinker, who I believe was the head of NBC at this point, and Grant laughed in his face when he heard the story. Corey called me and said, never mind, you can air it. So, but yeah, him him dipping, him pacing, I, I was like, oh my god, that's so cute, he pulled the Lord. Yeah, Eddie Murphy um, got death threats. But yeah, he was talking about, oh my god, I do remember how, like, he was talking about, he would have trouble with, like, the LAPD and how he had been, like, like, he couldn't, well, this is going in a de-escalating level of like he couldn't get a cab which is like inconvenient racist but inconvenient but then like the LAPD like throwing him against a car like that's that's a little bit more than an inconvenience I would say yeah no that's definitely (laughs) more than an inconvenience that's it's fucked up it's racist and that was after he left Saturday Night Live that that happened i mean that was when he was eddie fucking murphy that's not and not that that makes it any better right. i'm not saying that makes it any better or any worse like nobody should be thrown up against a car because of the color of their skin nobody should be thrown up against a car regardless no matter what they did there are better ways to handle things but the fact that that was his reality and that is the reality of so many Americans but yeah it's just it's fucked and so some time passes I don't know how much time because well I was high when I was reading and it happened over a number of days so Mm -hmm. uh John Belushi unfortunately he dies this really hit the cast hard it really sobered the cast up because until that point it was a party lifestyle and then they were like wait shit we're kind of all doing the same thing he was doing it to excess but we're all partying and he died so maybe we need to dial it back of like oh like what i'm doing right now might not be the best for me in the future right it's a wake-up call yeah garrett morris the way that he found out 
John Belushi died. This is on page 249. The way he found out he died was an LA Times lady got my number and had the nerve to call me and tell me he was dead and then try to elicit a response. And so he said no. And of course I hung up because I didn't want to have AT&T sue me for using words like, well, motherfucker is not a four letter word. It's a 12 letter word, but I was going to call her a motherfucker at least 12 times. Which would be totally valid. It would be totally valid. Totally warranted. So Acting that was like a motherfucker. Fucked up. And at this point, Saturday Night Live needed, they needed an all-star cast. They needed to bring in viewers. They were struggle lessons. And they hire Billy Crystal and Martin Short. And uh, Michael McKean was on the list for this. He was... Lenny or Squiggy in um, Laverne and Shirley. I don't know if you're familiar with that show, but he also played Chuck on Better Call Saul. I don't know if you watched that. I don't watch Better Call Saul, but I do. Okay, so yeah, that's him. So yeah, he uh, he was in the running for a slot on this cast. But he is quite a good comedic actor. So at this point, uh, they hire Billy Crystal, Martin Short. The pitches became more performances as opposed to just, hey, I have an idea. It's, you know, if you have someone like Billy Crystal walking into your office and performing a sketch for you, of course you're going to be wowed by that. It's, you know, it was a lot of like right. dazzling and stardom. I just want to say that the main way that, I know Martin Short is because for a very long time he was the host of um, the attraction in the Canadian Pavilion at Epcot. <laughs> he like hosts it because he's Canadian and it's it's cute. <laughs> uh, so that's how I knew him. I was like, oh, the Canadian Pavilion guy. Yeah, I remember him being in movies and things that my parents watched when I was little. So, like, that was my my introduction was his older comedy, which, again, I probably shouldn't have been watching it at the age I was, but I was, yeah, my parents were like, yeah, she's precocious, she's fine. <laughs> okay. Yeah, my dad would say, he'd be like, oh, I love all this stuff that he's in. And I'd be like, I don't care, dad. <laughs> Yeah, no, and the thing is, is that I loved it because it's, like, what I watched with them. So I just grew up watching adult TV shows and adult comedy stuff. Larry David, I felt bad for him. Oh, yeah. As but he goes on to... I, I, that's in my notes, is I have poor Larry David, dot, 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 dot. But he did just <laughs> fine. It's not like he wasn't successful. Yeah. No, Bob Tischler says some people are just not meant to write for Saturday Night Live. Larry was one of them. And I get that. His style of writing is just not meant for the show. His style of writing is Seinfeld. Like, yes. that's what works I, for him. And it works really well. Yeah, and Curb. I love Curb, but it's... Oh my god, I'm obsessed. It does not... <laughs> it's not SNL. It's very, very, very different. In 1984, Vega was president. There was no political stuff. Uh, Brad Hall says, you look back, it's kind of bizarre. Uh, during an entire political election, there's almost no political humor. Nothing. And... It's that would be frustrating if you're on a show that is known for yeah. its commentary and satire to be restricted for, to be told you can't do that. And then if you're a viewer of the show, that's what you're tuning in for. To not see it, you're going to be disappointed. I would be so disappointed if, like, on Saturday they just don't address the election. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> right? I would be, oh, I would be. 
Yeah, I, I, my jaw would drop. There's just no fucking way. They just released the promo for... They just released the promo with Jim Carrey as Joe. True. Like, literally just now, they did. Yeah. Jerry Lewis had a quote that I was like, what the fuck? But yeah, Margaret Oberman says, Jerry Lewis hosted the show when I was there. He told me some outrageously foul story about he just done, how he'd just done Hell's a-popping with Lynn Redgrave, and someone asked him what he thought of Lynn Redgrave, and he said, I'd like to take my cock out and piss all over her. It was insane. Like, that is insane. Why do you think that's okay to say? Anyway, like, if you want to think it, that's disgusting, but okay, sure. Like, you do you, man. <laughs> saying it out loud is another thing, and then saying it in the presence of others when you're asked a question? That's a no 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 sir no thank you (laughs) the john madden okay so john madden the nfl coach and then announcer um hosted and he was a practical joker but dickie brissall says the closest he ever got to having a heart attack was with john madden right before a show or oh with john madden it was really about (sighs) the closest i ever came to having a heart attack before i had a real one in february of 96 so we were in a break and John was up on home base to the second monologue when he said in a booming voice, Ebersol, Ebersol. And I'm under the bleachers in approximately the same area that Lauren works at today. I stuck my head around the corner so he could see me. He said, come here a minute. I came about halfway to the stage area with a full house, whatever it is, 300 plus for dress. And he said, I just want to tell you now I'm going to finish this dress rehearsal and then I'm going to leave. I'm not happy with how things have been going, and I'm enough of a trooper to finish it for this audience, but I'm out of here. This is just the pits. And I'm standing there, and I'm dying. And he lets out about two or three, he lets about, uh, and he lets about two or three seconds go, and then he gets the biggest smile on his face in the world. And he said, you know, I'm a practical joker, don't you? The place went nuts. But in the meantime, I just about had a heart attack. (laughs) That was... It'd be insane if he meant that seriously, but the fact that he, like, came up with that and he said, like, he did it, like, whoa. <laughs> That's guts. <laughs> Are you familiar with the TV show Taxi? Um, heard of it. Um, so yeah, it was a show about, it was basically the Parks and Rec of the 70s. It was about a bunch of people that worked in a taxi dispatch station. So it was just a yeah. bunch of drivers and a bookkeeper and the, you know dispatch guy and so taxi it won a bunch of emmys and then they canceled it like right after like right after it won a bunch of emmys it was insane it was like the it was like parks and rec getting canceled like season four at its height or something but then like, it goes down and that do- it does suck to see your a show that you once like really liked and admired have some bad seasons right danny i mean Bacon- i think law should have ended after season two well yeah law should have probably ended after season one to be perfectly fucking honest maybe but- so um anyway danny devito was on taxi that was i think where he got his start the first time he hosted SNL in Taxi, had just gotten a bunch of Emmys, and then they promptly canceled the show. And we did a whole thing on Saturday Night Live where we blew up the ABC building in the cold opening, and the taxi drove off a bridge. <laughs> it's like, I can't wait to get there! I want to watch that so badly! Right? Oh my fucking god. <laughs> yeah. You could just look that one specific one up. No, Although it's that's so cheating. hard to find specific things on YouTube. It, oh my god. Dude, it is. Okay. But I mean, it's going to be on Peacock soon, but also no, that is cheating. Mm. I am, I have been so tempted to go forward and watch stuff and be like, well, I really like it. Nope. In this, in this until, in this until we're not anymore. So it's like, you know what? I, I'm waiting. True. So, cause I want to get my like Whoa. reactions. I don't want to like anticipate it. It's like, I want to like have my reaction yeah. to it be the cold reaction. Watching it and you're like, 
Yeah, fair. So, yeah, for five years, Saturday Night Live, this is on page 286. This is a full quote from, I'm guessing it's a mixture of James Andrew Miller and Tom Shales. For five years, Saturday Night Live had gone through highs and lows, sometimes seeming like the distressed damsel in a silent movie tied to railroad tracks and then being plucked up just before the train rode through. But what had Ebersol and his stars saved? The show or merely the title? Glorious tradition or mere commercial franchise? Dot, dot, dot. And yet anything that lasts has to change. And Ebersol's final year, the one that starred Billy Crystal and Martin Short, is widely considered one of the funniest in the history of the show. The laughs were there, if not the heart. And then that is shortly thereafter followed up by a quote from Andrew Smith saying, Lauren rules the reruns now. Any clips or anything like that, it's as if the Ebersol years didn't exist. Once in a while, he'll throw in an Eddie Murphy, but whenever there's a clip show, it's like those years of Ebersols just disappear. It's as if Lauren still has some kind of heart on about Dick. That's how <laughs> I, first off, that's hilarious. <laughs> so yeah, that's how season, that's how season three. Section. Section three, yeah, sorry. Unit three. I don't even know what you want to call it. Although I did just want to say, I literally like love all those little like asides that they do like to like transition like from one like time period to another where they little write up. Always so good. (laughs) Yeah, the beginning, the beginning and end of chapter write ups really do quite a nice job of summing them up and help you remember what the hell's going on you know because sometimes these things are like 150 pages and it's like oh yeah it was it was five years of content and sometimes you're smoking a lot of weed so (laughs) sometimes have somebody write it up nicely for you yeah (laughs) that is it for chapter three you can find us at satnighthighpod.com under episodes or you can listen to us wherever you catch your pods We would be ever so grateful if you like what you hear. If you could like, comment, subscribe, leave a review. We really appreciate it. We are at Sat Night High Pod. And that's on Instagram and on Twitter. But on Twitter, night is spelled N-I-T-E because of character limit. Oh, we're also on Reddit. I forgot to say that. We oh, in Facebook. <laughs> I don't have it written out. It's uh, just all up in my head. You can send us your emails at satnighthighpod at gmail.com. You can also send us stories of funny stuff that happened when you were high, the first time you got high, um, what kind of weed you like to smoke, product recommendations. That's it for me. I'm Gilda. And I'm Steph. Happy highs. Yes.